0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 24th of August 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and uh, Debbie Evans, UK Column Nursing Correspondent.
1: Okay, uh, we'll get straight on then with inflation. And uh, well, of course, a few days ago, the Bank of England uh, suggesting that annual inflation was going to be uh, 13% or so by the end of the year. Uh, Citigroup, uh, their chief economist in the UK, has uh, now issued a forecast saying it'll be 18.6% by the end of the year, Um, and uh, well, likely to be over 20% at the beginning of next year. Um, I'll
0: just add to that, if I may, Uh, Mike, I'm old enough to live through the uh, nearly 17% inflation in the late 70s, I think it was, if I remember correctly. And uh, this is a reality, it can happen and the effect is disastrous. So people who think these figures can't be achieved. Absolutely, they can. And UK has experienced it.
1: Well, I'm going to suggest that they're not, it's not going to stop there. But the question Mm -hmm. is then what's going to happen with respect to energy bills? So this is the uh, Citigroup forecast for that, uh, that by the end of the year, we're going to see, or the next uh, price cap, raise uh, 4,567 pounds being the annual average uh, energy bill. Uh, and at some point next year, uh, very early next year, rising as high as uh, £5,816 annually uh, for the average bill. Now, the question is, why is this happening so quickly? Well, of course, it's because uh, while I was away on holiday at the start of the month, Ofgem, the regulator decided that uh, the price cap uh, would be reviewed quarterly. Uh, and they've confirmed that. We reported that, I think, back in July that they were going to do this. Well, that was confirmed. So that is... Uh, absolutely happening. So uh, then the institute government then today has uh, published uh, this document addressing rising energy bills. What could the new prime minister do? Uh, so let's see what they're saying about this. Big increases in energy bills mean that UK households are set to face a very difficult winter. Annualized bills for typical household are currently £1,971, already 50% higher than in March, uh, but they're expected to increase to £3,600 in October, and even further to 4,600 pounds from January. So their forecast not quite as high as Citigroup's, but nonetheless still pretty eye-watering. Uh, and the, they say then the government has already provided some support. 400 pounds isn't going to make much difference there, uh, but of co- but more is likely to be needed. They say this paper lays out the government's options. Um, so they're saying extending the Johnson government support package to account for higher energy bills would cost. 23 billion pounds. Uh, if the new government wanted to offset almost 90% of bill increases this financial year, uh, retaining the generosity of the May 2022 package, it would need to spend an additional 23 billion pounds. It would cost less, just 10 to 12 billion, to do this only for low-income households, pensioners, and those with disabilities. Um, so, 23 billion extra pounds uh, floating around the economy. What's that going to do to inflation? I wonder. That's a bit of a rhetorical question, but let's uh, let's move on with this. Uh, the next point they make is uh, capping energy bills would avoid gaps in support, would be, but would be expensive. And this is uh, based on the Labour Party proposal. Um, their proposal is to cap the current uh, energy prices at 1,971 per year for a typical household. And they say this would uh, have the benefit of providing more support to high energy use households uh, who under current government policy get the same cash support as those with lower bills this would be expensive, costing just over 40 billion for six months. It would also mean that households would face lower energy prices and have less incentive to save energy. Is that what this is all about in reality? Uh, people may have opinions on that. And then they say support is likely to be needed beyond this year. So far, support is all focused on winter 2022-23, but current projections are for more, are for energy prices to be just as high, if not higher, next year. The new prime minister will need to be ready to provide further support again, offsetting the same proportion of bills next year would cost around 90 billion. Uh, Given how the crisis is expected to last, the government should also look at other measures to deal with high energy bills, including investing in energy efficiency. But um, that's another 90 billion on top. So again, what's that going to do to inflation? Um, So let's have a look at what The Telegraph is saying, because, of course, this is resulting in strike action, and Felix Stowe uh, poured the latest to experience this. Um, and the headline here from the Telegraph is, uh, Felix Stowe's strike exposes the true colors of militant union barons. And I'm wondering, is this a fair assessment of what's going on? Uh, and this was the key paragraph. It's becoming a depressingly familiar sight, uncompromising left-wing zealots fighting a confected war with a uh, profligate private sector fat cats on behalf of supposedly short-changed workers. And Alex, maybe get your thoughts on this because this comment from the Telegraph seems to represent, uh, in fact, both sides of a bogus argument. So on one hand, we've got uh, uh, you know the the city of London and the government pursuing policies that are driving inflation and making people's lives misery. Uh, that then causes people to uh, take industrial action, uh, and then we get the narrative that uh, this is. Uh, uh, zealotry on the behalf of the the left wing. Well, in fact, the left wing, there's plenty to criticize there because they're not being honest with their workforces about what the true causes of the inflation are and where the solutions are to be found. But pay rises of 5, 6, 7, 8% aren't going to solve anything in the medium to long term because inflation is going to continue rising. Um, so uh, I, I don't know what you think of, of this this narrative that that this is all the unions' fault because uh, that it seems to me is diversionary.
2: I would say it's diversionary, Mike, because the unions have actually never had less influence among Britain's workers. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm not of Brian's generation quite, but I do remember, um, you know, as recently as the '80s, the early '90s, when we had a fairly severe recession. The TV news was full of union boss bashing, uh, sometimes with with justification because a few of those bosses were not really representing the workers or or enunciating common sense. But the the problem is that this this divide, as you say, Mike, of fat cats versus left-wing zealots really ignores the problems with money creation and the money supply altogether. And as viewers know, I've just come back from Glasgow, which has got the longest and deepest history of any British city of this kind of industrial uh, unease. And the signs in the windows there and the picket boards are all about capitalism not working. That was the mood music of some of the mostly old left meetings that David Scott and I addressed. And we have to concede their point. You know, we might not like the language of capitalism not working, but what they're, I would say, groping towards is the identification of the purchasing power of their wages disappearing. Over here in the Netherlands, I've, I I know at least one entrepreneur of a small business who pays his uh, employees in silver ingots.
1: Yeah.
0: I I wonder whether I could just add, I get a sense, though, that, of course, we've got a hand stirring up the angst. This is a a divisive um, headline and an article. Um, You and I have talked about a psychological attack on the UK. And to me, this is this is a hidden hand stirring the agenda to get people at each other's throats against this created backdrop of an economic uh, crisis.
1: Yes. I think that's right, uh, but let's uh, let's move on then. Office for National Statistics here, talking about importing uh, the imports of goods from Russia, uh, because of course uh, this is part of what's driving this problem, but uh, 33 million pounds in June is uh, the value of the imports from Russia. That's the lowest on record. Uh, and uh, ONS also saying that there were no imports of fuel of any kind from Russia in June 2022 for the first time since records began in January, 1997. So uh, economic uh, problems uh, continuing to grow and, uh, well, the focus is not being applied in the right place, in my opinion. Uh, But let's uh, move on to uh, defense and so on then. And here's James Heapy. Uh, He's in Estonia, strangely enough. Maybe it's, uh, Alex, maybe it's a coincidence that uh, he's in Estonia just within a couple of days of uh, of a bombing in Moscow where the perpetrator is supposed to have run to Estonia. Maybe that's uh, just a coincidence. But anyway, he's over there. Uh, to meet UK soldiers uh, protecting NATO's borders, uh, because NATO, as we know, has borders now. Uh, and uh, this is during to his visit to Estonia, uh, including his old battalion, which is Second Rifles. Um, so he uh, went to Tapa, where more than 1,600 British personnel are based. Uh, and he also met with Estonia's newly appointed defence minister. Uh, and to discuss the joint work to support Ukraine and uphold European security. So uh, very, very briefly, Alex, do you think it's a coincidence this happens to be there at this particular point?
2: Uh, no, there's no coincidences with British government ministers going to small ex-Soviet nations. When I was at GCHQ, we always joked that uh, you know, the, the Continentals uh, would send them on routine visits, their ministers with responsibility for that part of the world, and Britain would send them to smooth the way for deals involving uh, minerals or precious metals or warfare, basically. And I do have in the can forthcoming an Eastern Approaches podcast with an Englishman who's uh, made a great success working for Estonia's public broadcaster, one of of the things he says, we discussed TAPA and the, the British Battalion there on Rumor, one of the things he says is that the Estonians, even though it's the equivalent of the BBC, allow him to publish his material and take his own responsibility for accuracy, something that we wouldn't get in the West.
1: Yes, okay, well thanks for that Alex. Now, uh, well guess what, it is uh, Independence Day in Ukraine and uh, the UK government and the Foreign Office have pushed this out, £220 million of humanitarian assistance according to this little uh, video, £2.3 billion in military support to Ukraine, including six thousand nine hundred anti-tank weapons, one hundred and twenty armored vehicles, thousands of pieces of military equipment. So, a nice little propaganda piece here, Brian, to support uh, Independence Day in Ukraine. Uh,
0: well, this is true, but at the same time, they're very concerned because there's a lot of reports at the moment that the Russians have not only greatly increased their attacks on all the fronts in Ukraine; uh, they're moving troops and equipment into Belarus and. Uh, There's indications that they're now bringing uh, a lot of aircraft to bear in the north, uh, on the borders of the north of Ukraine. So uh, the situation at the moment is far from running out of troops and weapons. The Russians are now increasing their attacks. They've made uh, progress in the south, uh, close to Mykolaiv. And uh, they've also captured more strategic urban areas around the rest of the front. So what what we are seeing very clearly is that the Russian economy is easily capable of sustaining uh, this war. They can produce the ammunition and the munitions, and they can move it into position, while in contrast we are seeing that weapons from the West are decreasing steadily, and there's only one reason for this, that uh, NATO countries, the EU, UK, even the US, have no longer got the uh, production capability to produce the weapons which Ukraine would like to have so most of the commentators who are talking about the reality of what's happening on the ground say it's very clear this war is over and the only thing that's going to happen if it continues is that the death toll of Ukrainian soldiers is going to increase and many people are talking about total Ukrainian casualties as high as 190,000. Uh, so we're talking about deaths, 50,000, 60,000 Ukrainians, and that death toll is going to increase dramatically as the defences collapse. So what should we be doing here in UK? We feel that we should be calling for the ceasefire in Ukraine, put a stop to the fighting and start that negotiation, which might leave uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians with at least part of their country. But if they continue to fight, I think it's very clear what's going to happen.
1: Yes. So anyway, uh, you know, FCDO talking about the amount of money being spent in Ukraine, uh, that took me, uh, I look at this website occasionally, this is the foreign offices uh, spending over £25,000. They publish a monthly spreadsheet of where they're putting their money and so on. Um, And so I was having a look at this uh, and came across a particular company. Now, this isn't related to Ukraine as far as I know at this point uh, at the moment, but I was fascinated as I was going through uh, the spreadsheet, uh, this little company, Torchlight Solutions Limited. Um, now, it's a small amount of money, £135,825. I'm going to say a small amount of money relative to the Foreign Office budget. Uh, but uh, Torchlight was interesting. So I went and had a look at Torchlight on the uh, company's house website. Uh, and here they are. And, well, sorry, if we just go back to that previous uh, slide, you'll notice that, that payment of £135,000 uh, was made on the 25th of March this year, uh, Brian. Uh, but strangely enough on the 25th of March this year Torchlight Solutions Limited uh, was their directors resigned and uh, the application to strike the company off the register was made on the day that this uh, payment was made. So this I thought was a bit strange so let's have a look uh, further. Um, so Torchlight Solutions Limited uh, according to the company's house uh, re- uh, register says is owned by Torchlight Group Limited Uh, So let's go and look at Torchlight Group Limited. It's owned by Torchlight Group Holdings Limited. Uh, And so, if we look at Torchlight Group Holdings Limited, well it's owned by Overleaf Holdings Limited and if we look at Overleaf Holdings Limited, it's owned by Axiom International Limited. So if we look at Axiom International Limited, we find that it's owned by AFA Bidco Limited which is, in fact, now called AFA International Limited. And if we look at that, it's owned by AFA Midco A Limited, uh, and AFA Midco A Limited is owned by AFA Topco Limited, and AFA Topco Limited is owned by Limmerston Capital Partners One, uh, GP LLP. Uh, and if we find out who owns that, uh, it's owned by uh, Limmerston Capital Partners. Uh, uh, sorry, Limmerston. Sorry, Limmerston Fulham Limited. And then if we look at Limerston Film, Limited, it's owned by Limit, Limit, <laughs> Limerston Capital LLP. And then finally, we get some real human beings. Um, so after all that trail, we get some three active persons with significant control over Limerston Capital LLP. And we have uh, a Portuguese national, uh, Mr. Caldera. We've got another Portuguese national. And we've got uh, Mr. James Paget, who is a Swiss national, but whose correspondence address is in Buckingham Palace Road, London. Um, Okay, that's quite interesting. So payment has gone to a company which is uh, on the same day being put into liquidation, and it's owned by a whole host of other companies, uh, eventually ending up here. But if we go back to Torchlight Solutions Limited, which is the original company that the payment was made to, and we look down at uh, the nature of business, uh, it says dormant company. And this is, gets even more strange because it's been a dormant company for years, it hasn't traded, and the accounts if you look at the accounts uh, it shows that they, it has not traded in that time so what was this payment for um, but if we go back to torchlight group limited which owns torchlight solutions limited um, and uh, we look at that uh, let's bring this up well it was previously called torchlight solutions limited um, so okay perhaps let's say that the foreign offices spreadsheet is simply out of date uh, that at some point Torchlight Solutions Limited renamed to Torchlight Group Limited, and then they set up another company called Torchlight Solutions Limited just to keep things all very clear and obvious what's going on. But in fact, that's not the case either, because if we go back to the Foreign Office's of spending website and look at the spreadsheet there, we find entries for Torchlight Group Limited as well. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that the database at the Foreign Office recognizes the two separate legal entities. Uh, And so it recognizes that a payment has been made to Torchlight Group Limited and a payment has been made to Torchlight Solutions Limited. So this is very, very strange. Uh, And uh, coming back to Torchlight Group Limited then, and we look at uh, one of the directors of that, uh, just the first on the list, Jonathan Darcy Blything-Blows, and we look at what he's into, uh, and we find that he's a director of goodness knows how many companies. I think it's about 13 active companies plus the three torchlight companies that have now been uh, put into liquidation. Um, And you'll find some of the companies that I just listed a few minutes ago on this list as well. So, um, Alex, I'm going to ask you for for your thoughts on this. uh, But just before I do, uh, just to come back to to the uh, Foreign Office uh, website, why is £135,000 one hundred thirty-five thousand eight hundred twenty-five pounds, and there were other payments to this organisation in this uh, spreadsheet as well, going to a company which is dormant, company never traded, and is now in liquidation. Um, I'm very interested, Alex, on whether you've got any thoughts on this.
2: The first query I would have on that, Mike, and maybe the spreadsheet that you got doesn't allow this to be addressed, is: Were these payments made by the Foreign Office itself in King Charles Street in Whitehall? Or were they made by the slightly outsourced FCDO services, which for some years now has been headquartered in Milton Keynes, and which, as the name suggests, takes care of purchasing such things as translations and a lot of other aids, physical and and media-based for the Foreign Office's work? Because if it's the latter, I've always found them Pretty scrupulous and up-to-date with their financial details. For full disclosure, I do occasionally supply them with translations as well privately. Um, But FCO in Whitehall may have slightly more creaky, cronky old systems.
1: Well, that might be true, Alex. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, if if a member of the public were to be trading with a dormant company uh, and passing money to a dormant company, uh, they'd be the first up against the wall to be shot. So uh, you know the Foreign Office cannot uh, take a a different standard to everybody else. That's the first point. The second point is, I don't know what your thoughts are on just the fact that that the company that is receiving the money from the uh, from the Foreign Office is owned by twenty or thirty other companies. You know, there's a whole trail there and no transparency whatsoever about who is doing what, who owns what. And, and what these companies are even getting paid for. Um, so, you know, what, what is it, a, 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 you know, not just comment from you, but actually if there's anybody in the, the accountancy field that's watching this that can give me an explanation of why, why companies would set themselves up in such a trail, I would be very interested to know. But, a, but have you got any thoughts on that?
2: Well, at the number of iterations you've shown there, Mike, a good dozen with these uh, holding company names. And at one point, even a midco and a topco—you know—one of the ways of saying in shorthand a shell within a shell—it's looking pretty suspicious, isn't it? The late Gordon Balden. Uh, was extremely good at wheedling this out, although in his case, he was finding you know addresses in Finchley Road in London and Lothian Road in Edinburgh. There wasn't any of that here. The top companies are Buckingham Palace Road, which you know, I'm sure our foreign viewers find that posh and intriguing. Well, it's a road along which some of the government agencies are. It's just west of the main drag on Whitehall, where the government agencies' departments are. Uh, and towards the bottom of that chain, the, uh, to, the closer you get to Torchlight with the two names, uh, a couple of the holding companies are in Harrogate in Yorkshire, which Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, uh, is where Menwith Hill Station is, which is effectively a GCHQ base nestled within an NSA base, nested within a USAF base, nested within an RAF base, uh, and a listening post, of course, for the the, the satellites. So um, the government too is 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 keen on this kind of nesting. But you know, if you look at the geographical data as well, some something strikes me as a bit odd. There, shall we say?
0: Yeah. And this is this is even before we really
1: understand
0: what Torchlight was being paid the money for. Well,
1: indeed. And there's no way to find that out uh, easily. So uh, so anyway, uh, anybody got any suggestions, do do get in touch in the chat box of suggesting money laundering. Uh, I think that was what you thought originally.
0: Well, I think it's a reasonable thing for somebody on the Clapham omnibus to think. But of course, there's no evidence of that. All no. we've got is evidence evidence that there's a rather strange nest of companies but of course what is the fco doing in the background It's providing money uh, to all sorts of interesting operations for example around ukraine at the moment and uh, money also going into the bbc's media action so-called charity so if this is the sort of clarity of the fco fcdo's monetary uh trail there's a lot of questions to be asked i think
1: indeed okay let's move on if you like what the uk column does and you would like to support us then please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org your uh, membership would be very much welcomed uh, you'd be welcomed as a member uh, and uh, uh, very much appreciated so uh, you could pick something up at the uk column shop if you'd like or uh, but in any case do share our material on the various platforms Indeed.
0: Well, uh, a call out for the alternative view online conference starting at nine o'clock on the 4th of September. So UK Column is uh, hosting this effectively. So the, uh, the event will go out from the UK Column studio. Uh, we are very, very keen that this is a success because it is the Kickstarter to get the alternative view conferences going again. And of course, many, many people enjoyed those from the mix of the speakers and of course meeting other people in the audiences and if i remember correctly the last one um, a live uh, event had an audience of about 550 people when the day ticket people came in about 400 plus people staying in the hotel venue Um, if you'd like this to restart please buy your ticket and support the online version that would be really good And Alex, you've got some mentions here for us, I think.
2: We have, Brian. Uh, Our increase of output continues apace, although the August breaks that several several of us have had have slowed that down, but no mind. So uh, the first thing I'd like to mention is that if you go to the ukcolumn.org homepage and find topics in the menu, you will find one of the new topics is mind. And what we have done is retrospectively tagged everything to do with psychology, psychiatry, nudging, mind control, behavioral therapy and behavioral policy uh, in one area. So the, uh, that's uh, across all the authors, Ian Davis, Debbie Evans and Dr. Bruce Scott, whom I met in Edinburgh again last week, are all at the top there. But uh, this is well worth going into and uh, bearing in mind that you can share with people the fact that UK Column, fairly uniquely probably among the non-tiny Players in the media scene has such a thing as a reporting category called "mind." Uh, the attack on the mind, as well, is part of that, and we hope to add to it further. But uh, also among our stable of, of authors whose production is only going up and up, there is Mark Anderson in the USA, uh, who has uh, on the back of the first report I did on the first fifth of August uh, in a in a sec- segment for the UK column news. Uh, output. He has gone back and looked at the uh, article, the, the letter written by 19 state attorneys general to Larry Fink of BlackRock. Uh, so you'll find that as 19 US states fed up with BlackRock's brazen efforts to function as a private government, which is all about the ESG drive to make everything sustainable in investment and how this cuts across people's entitlement to have a fiduciary duty over their pensions. And uh, the final mention from me is that some point, perhaps by the end of today, the latest of Debbie, Debbie Evans's blogs will be up. Uh, it's tagged as health, but it's also tagged as opinion, so you will find it. I think Mike will correct me if I'm wrong, but we'll be putting that towards the bottom of the homepage in uh, in the comment section and if people want to know where debbie evans back numbers are we're looking at ways to simplify it but for the time being if you click on any article by debbie evans that will bring up her author page we recognize that you know, among all the authors we have all of whom are much appreciated by the public debbie is particularly prolific and insightful and much appreciated by the public so we are looking for ways to for her very up-to-date uh, comments and uh, notices to be shared in even more ways on the website because she is one of a kind, I would say, and you'll find that later in this news as we co-present something that she's quite f- found, which is quite a, a unique revelation.
0: Okay, Alex, thank you for that. Well, I'll just add a little bit more because we've also got this on the UK Column website. It's the interview with Kimberly Isherwood. This is the uh, lady who's working with a tremendous group of women in Wales tackling a child sexualisation uh, via the relationships and sex education. And I understand that... Um, Kim Isherwood was being interviewed by Jeremy Vine this morning, and uh, I think there was a fairly crude attempt to put her down, but she was easily holding her own. We'll do more on that in due course, Um, but you can find that interview on UK Column website to understand what it's all about. Uh, We've also got a really excellent interview with Dr. Ross Jones and Dr. Christian Buckland, who's a psychotherapist, and they are basically talking about why children shouldn't be vaccinated. So we'll leave you to have a look at that. And uh, we'll we'll end with this one, which was um, Debbie's interview with uh, the BBC participant Luca Barbarossa, and that was for the BBC's documentary Unvaccinated. So In a really good interview um, Debbie was able to take the lid off a really appalling performance by the BBC.
1: Um, Okay the uh, government was pushing this out today Uh, starting a university this year before you go make sure you're up to date with your vaccinations um, and uh, you know what the symptoms of meningitis and and uh, septicemia are and what to do if you think your mate shows signs and so on so there was a nice little animated uh, gif there and a lot of information about getting all your vaccinations before you go to university. Uh, but at the same time, then we had uh, the, the, the top story in the Daily Mail, uh, the tragic uh, uh, death of, uh, uh, of the Olympic gold cyclist, uh, uh, or, or, sorry, the the Scottish cyclist, uh, Rob Wardell, uh, who passed away last night, apparently from heart failure. Um, now, it has to be said that cyclists, uh, amongst other endurance sports people uh, are slightly more susceptible to heart problems because they of the, the type of uh, of workouts that they give themselves. But uh, I just wanted to highlight or suggest that perhaps there are questions to be asked there. Was he vaccinated and and so on? I'm not suggesting that there's any evidence at this point uh, as to what uh, may have triggered the thing. But uh, nonetheless, we hear, are hearing more and more sports people on a regular basis passing away suddenly. Uh, But all we get from the uh, fact checkers is the likes of this no evidence for a rise in sudden deaths or that COVID vaccines are the cause. Um, Now, of course, uh, as true to form full facts article here, which is uh, a couple of weeks old now, uh, is basically regurgitating government uh, information and not doing any proper investigation into what uh, or whether there's any link between uh, excess mortality and uh, vaccinations. Uh, But uh, the Office for National Statistics has published another week's data. And again, we've got another week of excess mortality slightly lower than the last several weeks. But nonetheless, uh, excess mortality, once again, not being really tackled by anybody at this point, and nobody really discussing it other than us. Yes,
0: indeed. And I'll just add that yesterday, I was able to interview a retired heart surgeon, and he had um, uh, significant concerns about the uh, rise in the number of young people that are suddenly having heart problems, dropping dead. So again, he was focused on the reality of what's happening on the ground. And he is very, very surprised that nobody is doing any due diligence Mm -hmm. to ascertain what's the cause. Well, let's move through. And um, Debbie, this is really an excellent segment that you've uh, put together. We're gonna be featuring really on the lack of safety Around matters to do with the vaccinations. But we're going to come in at the angle that we've also had um, a report about the safety of pharmaceutical products by uh, Baroness Cumberledge. And uh, we thought it appropriate to, or you thought it appropriate to, start off with a little look at Baroness Cumberledge and what's been said about her in the press. So we'll just pop this one on screen and then I'll bring you in and we can get. We can get into it, as they say. So here's The Guardian. Tory Peer accused of misusing Lords to boost her own firm. And then in the highlighted box, the Peer's firm, Cumberledge Connections, run courses and conferences in which clients involved in healthcare pay to learn about how Westminster and Whitehall operates. The firm says it works extensively with the NHS regulatory organisations, and the pharmaceutical industry. So that's a very interesting little nest there, Debbie. I'll get you in for some initial comments and then we'll follow up on that particular story by having a look at the Argus.
3: Yeah, well, thank you uh, for that, Brian. And yes, Baroness Cumberledge came to my attention because of course, uh, for people that don't know, Baroness Cumberledge was responsible for writing the Cumberledge report uh, which pretty much damned the MHRA. So I was very interested to know who Baroness Cumberledge was. And, and I have to say, just to save time in this segment, that the that what I've uncovered has been so complex and so deep that I'm going to hand over at times to both you gentlemen and to Alex as well, because I wanted to know who Baroness Cumberledge really is. Where has she come from? What is her background? And how much influence does she have? And of course, now I'm seeing that she's been involved in companies with regards to social influencing. So on that note, Alex might like to comment on what it was that Baroness Cumberledge was accused of doing just a few years ago.
2: Yes, uh, this is what used to be known as influence peddling. And it nearly brought John Major's government down at some point. Cash for questions was one side of it, although I stress we're not accusing Baroness Cumberlage of anything like that, but it has been under the broader umbrella term of selling influence, a re- recurrent bane in both houses of parliament. Um, it was John Major's government that brought Baroness Cumberlage in. As a member of the upper chamber, she was, uh, albeit non-elected, but a junior minister <clears throat> responsible for healthcare And I'm just, before we get to the slides on that, to give people especially a broad an idea of what's going on here, uh, Baroness Cumberledge uh, is actually uh, the daughter of, if I'm not mistaken, a German national who came to be a doctor in East Sussex, that's in the southeast corner of England around Brighton. And her father was Dr. Lambert Ulrich Cum, who anglicised the spelling of his surname from a K to a C, C C-A-double-M in the end. And... um, she was bringing up children in the 1960s having married at the beginning of that decade and the next thing we see is that she is a justice of the peace so um, you know a magistrate uh, a member of the executive that takes work off the court basically in the 1970s and then she gets through the county council network and that level or that strand of her political doings, uh, it ends up with her being appointed a deputy lieutenant of her county and a member of the Order of the British Empire at the fairly high rank of CBE commander, which is higher than an OBE, let alone an MBE, and above them you've only got the knights and the grand knights and whatnot. So pretty high up, and this is through the sort of, you might call it the, the shire's route of, of, uh, of promotion to office, just short of ennoblement and then ennoblement where you've done good things for your local community, and in her case, healthcare. But alongside that, the most intriguing thing is that she has DSG after her name. This is the Pontifical Equestrian Order of St. Gregory the Great. It's an 1837, uh, that's when it was originated as a a distinction, if I remember correctly. She's a papal knight or papal dame if they use that term, I don't think they do. Uh, these are very rare honours that the Vatican hands out. Others would be a papal count, which is the famous singer John McCormack had one of. They're pretty rare. And you have to have pleased the Vatican extensively, um, which brings us in shades of European Union military unification and the network of influence there for longer term viewers. But that would take us too far off track. But we are already asking our viewers, who is this lady and how did she get to where she is? There is a page which we haven't got a slide for from the Queen's Nursing Institute, where when she, as a baroness, was made a fellow of the Queen's Nursing Institute, uh, we see that the first line on who she is, rather shamefacedly, has to begin with Julia Cumberledge comes from a medical family. That, in itself, back to Debbie with this, I think, is an admission that she is not actually that au fait with nursing or, or medicine. In her own right. And uh, that page goes on to say that uh, the other route that Baroness Cumberledge had before she was a, a lady in the upper house is that she went through her local health authority, the city of Brighton, and then went through the regional health authority, which was South West Thames. And then before you know it, in John Major's uh, government, which had all these sleaze questions about it, uh, she found herself a junior health minister. And at that point, actually, she was the minister sponsoring the regeneration of the city of Plymouth and a £45 million budget a year. This is back in the 90s before Brian came ashore from the Navy and started his campaigns and and investigations. But Debbie, that's the impression we're getting, is that she's done something to please the Vatican and something to please the usual shire network of her Conservative Party, bringing her up to the House of Lords. But no medical expertise that I can see, a doctor's daughter at most.
3: Thank you, Alex. And, and that's exactly what um, I was suspecting. And, and I, I know that we're going to come on to see what she's, how much power Baroness Cumberledge has got. But please just remember that she comes from a medical family. She's not a doctor, she's not a nurse, she's not a health professional. Who is Baroness Cumberledge? So I know now, Brian, you're going to show a little bit more about the kind of power and, and, and place that she's come from and reputation that she seems to have taken with her through, funnily enough, actually it was very interesting listening to everything that Mike was saying about Companies House, because Baroness Cumberledge has had this company called Cumberledge Connections, which has gone into Cumberledge and Partners, which has now morphed into Eden and Partners, of which she's now no longer a director, but you can see all the social influencing. So uncovering who Baroness Cumberledge actually is and what she's been saying has been a very interesting journey as I know that we're gonna come and find out now.
0: Okay, thank, thank you for that, Debbie. Well, I'm just gonna carry on a little bit with the original sort of um, accusations made against her. This is the Argus. Um, we're back in 2009 for this story, uh, but Spinwatch was having a look at her and David Miller from Spinwatch said no peer should be treating Parliament as an office from which to do commercial business, and we will be making a complaint to the relevant authority. The fact that we don't know who Cumberledge's clients are, especially commercial health companies, is also a concern and underlines the fundamental need for greater transparency. Now, to be fair here, we're gonna put up the official response to the uh, complaint. And people can freeze this and read it on screen so there were a number of statements made um, following the complaint from david miller of Spinwatch. watch uh, we've got that uh, cumberledge has now made the required changes to her entry listed on the parliamentary website cumberledge now registers her directorship of cumberledge connections as a remunerated directorship and not a non-parliamentary consultancy as she owns and runs the company rather than providing consultancy services to it. And if you follow on down through the sentences, there's effectively an excuse or a rebuttal from uh, um, Cumberledge to uh, answer the accusations. Uh, I'll I'll just bring it a little bit more here uh, because uh, this paragraph says, Cumberledge has assured us that she has never used the Palace of Westminster for business purposes and that her consultancy is run from her home but one time in the past, she did facilitate access to the Palace of Westminster for clients to attend debates and select committees, but she no longer does so. And those of her clients who visit the Palace of Westminster now do so as members of the general public. Um, so that's pretty clear. She's come back and uh, there's an interesting web, I think, of reasons why she hasn't done anything wrong. And she's uh, she's supposedly Cleared her name in the process. Um, we can bring in this one though, which gets interesting. This is The Mirror. Uh, this is 2012 exclusive. Lords with links to private healthcare firms come under fire as peers are handed last chance to torpedo David Cameron's NHS reforms. And then inset on screen, we've got Julia Cumberledge. Another ex-health minister who runs a political networking firm dealing extensively with the drugs industry has taken part in almost half the NHS votes compared with her average attendance of less than one in three. And uh, we can move on to see a bit more of her engagement with the NHS with this NHS England uh, slide. It's talking about her being appointed junior health minister in 1992. And for five years she covered all health and social services matters. And then it goes on, at the invitation of the Royal College of Physicians, Julia has chaired two working parties. The first report, Doctors in Society, which I find very interesting, that was published in December 2005. And the second, Future Physician, Changing Doctors in Changing Times, was published in May 2010. Um, I'll just add this and I'll come back to you, Debbie. Um, If you want to see her links into the NHS, well, this headline from the NHS England site gives part of it. Choice in maternity care, shaping services for years to come, better maternity care, drop-in maternity review, finalising maternity review, have your say, birth tank. She's got a finger in a lot of pies in the uh, NHS. And um, I'll just get some comment from you, Debbie, before we have a look at the charities that she's also involved in.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, th- this is this is my thing, you see, Brian, is that she's she's involved in pretty much everything that's anything with regards to health, including um, the the thought of nurses prescribing drugs, uh, physicians, doctors, childbirth, maternity services, you name it. Julia Cumberledge, Baroness, sorry, Julia Cumberledge has has got something to do with it. But how? Why? (laughs) How has she got all of this power? But please carry on.
0: Well, we will. And I have to do this bit quick, uh, reasonably quickly, because we're coming to some video clips where I think people are going to be really interested in what this lady and others have to say. But uh, here's more of the um, network of Barrowless Cumberledge, because she's also involved with Cancer Research UK. We've got a bit more about that organisation. And of course, one of the things that's uh, coming out here is links between charities <coughs> excuse me, and the pharmaceutical firms themselves. Go and check this. Of course, we're using the real documents. But it says here the income received by Cancer Research UK uh, from such research partnerships with pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry in the fin- financial year 2021 is twenty two 8 billion. Is that correct? Million, Mm -hmm. sorry. Okay. Glass is clearly needed. And um, then it says the amount uh, came from interactions with AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Merck, uh, Amgen, GlaxoSmithKline, and Roche. So this is pretty interesting. And it says in many cases, the research partnerships involving Cancer Research UK funded researchers will involve payments being made by companies to universities and other academic research institutions which operate independently of cancer research. So now we've got the university nest there, but uh, let's pop this one up because this really shows that the lady is involved in a number of areas because this was a safeguarding report done for the Catholic Church uh, by uh, the Baroness herself. And um, we now say, well, my goodness, she's not only looking after the nation's health, Uh, but apparently she's uh, uh, the person you call in when you need the report written on safeguarding of children within the Catholic Church. Debbie, it's getting more fascinating, but we we need to move on to the meat. I'll I'll just say any comments on that, because I know you were quite surprised when you saw that report.
3: I was. I handed that over to Alex because it was above my pay grade, to be honest, Brian. I was so shocked.
0: Okay. Well, Alex, just give you the opportunity What do you feel about the Catholic Safeguarding Standards Agency and the work that it's done?
2: History will record quite patently, uh, as will the record of the ICSA, which was mentioned on screen there, the independent uh, inquiry into child sexual abuse for England and Wales and its Scottish equivalent, which was even more covered up, uh, that the Roman Catholic Church, like the Anglican Church and many of the free churches, wanted safe pairs of hands, to use a more political phrase, Uh, for the uh, investigation of what was then coming to be known in 2006-07 as safeguarding. This is now the big buzz phrase for watching out for children and vulnerable people in churches and other social settings. Uh, People who might be losing track of this as quickly as possible, I'll just say, um, Baroness Cumberledge's party went into a long 13-year wilderness period in 1997. She lost her junior ministerial post, and then by about 2000, we see her talking about the socialist ideology of the NHS. Again, a half-true statement latched onto by the hard left, uh, but of concern to all of us who know what's been done to the NHS. And then a few years after that, towards the end of the Tory wilderness years, that it's her Roman Catholic allegiances that come to the fore, and she's told, well, you are going to be, pardon the phrase, but I think it's appropriate, the safe pair of hands who is going to wrap the churches uh, over the knuckles to the appropriate degree with the appropriate outcomes. And I cannot resist reading her... 10 tips for influencing, which sound very much like her namesake, Julia Middleton's 10 tips or tips for for social campaigners, uh, because Debbie came up with these Um, in her list of 10 tips, which actually came uh, from a guide helped that produced to help in raising awareness and influencing legislation relating to osteoporosis. Baroness Cumberledge says you need to build and use alliances, work the system, Please bear in mind that this is relevant to the church child safeguarding investigation as much as it is to health. Build alliances, work the system, use research and respected publications, use your contacts, make opportunities, never ever let one pass you by, never ever give up. Use the media, every person has their price. Finally, use low cunning and lovable dimness, be creative. What
0: do you make Uh, of that, Brian? uh, Well, that comes to my mind, that comes straight out of the Common Purpose Handbook. These were the uh, sorts of things that uh, Julia Middleton and her at the time organization, I call it the political charity Common Purpose, was talking how to create future leaders, change agents in order to get into organizations and take control of them. The language is uncanny. But let's uh, move on to her report. And Debbie, you selected her covering letter to the Secretary of State. And let's see what it says. It says, first, do no harm. The report of the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review. Um, I'll give a little bit uh, more of um, what came out of that. Uh, And this is where we're starting to focus in on vaccines. The MHRA needs substantial revision particularly in relation to adverse event reporting and medical device regulation. There is a need for better engagement with patients and their outcomes and a greater role in public protection. So very early on, uh, Debbie, she is clearly acknowledging there is a problem. Um, She's saying that the MHRA doesn't just need revision, it needs substantial revision.
3: Yeah, absolutely, completely. And you know uh, we have to ask ourselves: Are we safe? And is the MHRA safe in Baroness Cumberledge's hands? But I'll 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 let you carry on, Brian, because it gets it it gets even deeper as we know.
0: Okay. Well, let's uh, bring this this one up. This is uh, another quote. There should be greater transparency of payments made to clinicians. That's very interesting, isn't it? After your segment, Mike, we've got a lack of transparency here with payments. The registers, sorry, the register of the GMC should be expanded to include a list of financial and non-pecuniary interests. In addition, there should be mandatory reporting for pharmaceutical and medical device industries, of payments made to teaching hospitals, research institutions, and individual clinicians. So what she's actually saying is that previously, this has all been opaque. Nobody's been sure of how much money is changing hands and with whom. The government should immediately set up a task force to implement the review's recommendations. Its first task should be to set out a timeline for their implementation. So it all sounds robust. She's clearly identifying that the system is, uh, well, it's not broken because clearly the system was designed to work as it was, which is opaque with money changing hands. But she's calling for the government to get to grips with it. Uh, But you're now going to jump the audience uh, right into 2022. Uh, You've come across an organisation called GS1 UK and you were particularly interested uh with what they were talking about in a uh, a particular conference now we are going to show part of uh, the video from that conference but before we do we're going to kick off with a uh, sky video uh, where baroness cumberledge is being interviewed let's have a look at that and then uh, debbie will bring you back
4: well, joining us now, Barris Cumberledge, who led the review um, that Neil just mentioned there into those other scandals, including the pregnancy drug Prima-Dos. Um, Baroness, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I know you were able to listen to Kit Morthouse there and the government's response to this compensation scheme, which, to be frank seems really messy, and it's such an important issue, you wonder how the government is proceeding with this. Some people getting payments, they're interims, some people not, questions over eligibility. What's your reaction to what's been announced today?
5: Well, can I say, I am delighted that people who have suffered so much, through no fault of their own, are getting some redress, some compensation, and we are calling the government to ensure that the people who have suffered through two medications and through the insertion of surgical mesh should also be compensated. We're calling it redress because compensation needs to be awarded through the courts. And we don't want these sick and vulnerable people having to go through the courts. So we're asking the government to give
4: redress. Yeah, it's today the day to step up the pressure on the government because your report concluded back in 2020. One of the recommendations was compensation. Victims of those three scandals that your report covered, you mentioned there, still fighting for compensation. Kit Malthouse, the government minister, said, you know, that's not for today, but I will look into it. What would you like to say to Kit Malthouse? His, he seems to be listening today.
5: Well, we certainly won't redress for those people and their families who have suffered so much. And that was a major recommendation in our report. And we have been fighting for it, but clearly we're going to have to persuade the government and we're hoping that whoever is the new prime minister will put this on the top of their must-do list, because these people need financial support for all the suffering that they have had and for their future.
4: Yeah, what happened to them, not just life-changing, but for so many, life-ending. Many people affected by these scandals will not live to see the redress that, that you seek on their behalf. Your report, in conclusion, made nine recommendations. Have any of them been implemented?
5: Yes, over half. And um, we are delighted we have a patient safety commissioner who has been appointed. And this person, Henrietta Hughes, is going to ensure that patients are always put first and foremost and their needs are met as far as possible.
0: Well, Debbie, while the video was running, Mike has just asked me where has Baroness Cumberledge been in the last two years as we see record after record of people being damaged or dying of uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, She's been very close to the pharmaceutical industry herself. Um, She's described the tangled web of relations and money payments into the NHS and the universities. But now she's standing in front of the camera saying that it's, it's important to throw a bit more money at the people who've been damaged by the pharmaceutical industry. This this is outrageous. I don't know how else to describe it.
3: Yeah, incredibly outrageous. I mean, there's conflicts of interest absolutely everywhere. I have been completely speechless because where is Baroness Cumberledge now? She was talking specifically about sodium valparate, mesh, and she's also been talking about the infected blood scandal and all of the mistakes that were made then appear to be happening now, as we speak, with the COVID vaccine, in inverted commas, gene technology injection. And yet, where is she? What's happened to her report? How did she get to where she got? And what is she saying now? And this conference, which I know that you're about to show a couple of video clips to, this conference has only been viewed by less than 30 people. I was the 23rd person to watch it. So when you see these clips, I would ask everybody, please go and watch this video. And also, please, could you click into the last MHRA board meeting? Because we need to know, we need these people to know we're
0: watching them. Okay, Debbie, thank you for that. Alex, I think you've got a comment.
2: As you're about to watch these clips, bear in mind how regulatory capture had already taken effect, it seems, in Baroness Cumberledge's case, Um, because that interview was from just before COVID, 2020, with regard to scandals such as sodium valproate in the years just prior to COVID. But four years before that, 2015-2016, Baroness Cumberledge was already the vice chairwoman of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Pharmacy, which exists to promote the pharmaceutical industry. And there she is, being the designated woman to tell the pharmaceuticals what they got wrong. And she was asked there by Sky News how many of her nine recommendations had been implemented. Well, number three of those is a new independent redress agency should be created for those harmed by medicines and medical devices. That's the MHRA's purview modelled on those operating effectively in other countries. And recommendation six, the MHRA needs substantial revision, particularly in regard to in relation to adverse event reporting and medical device regulation. I don't believe those two have been implemented, but that didn't seem to trouble the Baroness unduly. Uh,
0: not, not at all. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's right. Let's delve into the GS1 uh, conference. And we're going to have a look at Alison Cave, the safety officer for the MHRA, talking about the need for new regulation.
2: I mean, essentially, this is post Brexit yeah. uh, legislation where you're free subject to parliamentary approval to set your own rules on, yes. in terms of regulation.
6: Yes. So, I mean, what we need is a, the powers to appropriately track, identify, track and yep. have the appropriate reporting in place so that we do see these adverse instances really in a timely way. We want to know as soon as possible. And ideally we want to move to a situation where we can better predict when an adverse event may happen, mm. whether it be with a patient, with a device, sorry, or with a medicine. Um, So we're trying to put in new processes and new initiatives um, where we can better predict when a patient may be at harm from events or or an adverse event, such as, for example, um, for a medicine, um, if they have a pharmacogenetic factor underpinning the um, adverse uh, drug reaction, we can then predict that. We can prevent that patient even receiving the medicine so that we're really better at targeting our risk mitigation activities. Because at the moment we had fairly blunt tools because we don't always understand the mechanism that underpins an adverse drug reaction. So we need to better understand that and then we can target better the drug to the patient who will receive benefit and not harm.
0: We could have a whole discussion on that clip, which unfortunately we can't because of time in the news. But uh, the MHRA is saying that it's going to set up, uh, it wants to be able to set up its own system of regulation, not to be accountable to anybody. They're going to do it themselves. And then at the end, she calmly says, well, we don't really understand this process of vaccine adverse reactions. This is gross incompetence and negligence, Debbie. I found this clip astonishing, but it gets worse, as we will see. Just give you a comment on that. What what do you feel about Alison Cave as the the safety officer?
3: Absolutely nothing. Uh, Where does safety figure in her title? And just one comment, because I know you want some, we're, we're really short of time. One comment, they're using sharp tools because I call MRNA and all of this new technology sharp tools, and yet she's just admitted they've got blunt instruments. Go figure.
0: People being harmed, people dying, and this lady responsible for safety, saying, well, we're just trying to deal with our blunt implements. Well, it gets worse. Let's listen to Baroness Cumberledge here, uh, responding on this. I
5: so agree with you. Um, But one of the things patients were telling us was it was very hard for the MHRA to really understand the problems that they were having, and you have the yellow card system, and they were saying the mm-hmm. yellow card system simply doesn't work, and very often they found the yellow card had been sort of almost binned and nobody had taken any notice, mm-hmm. and I just wondered if you need to reconsider how you can actually take on board what the patients are telling you, whether you could have a system that is a bit more uh, user-friendly.
0: So the pharma co-vigilant system around the recorded yellow card um, data entries for vaccine adverse reactions, not really taking any notice of them. And in fact, they're just being binned. Debbie, outrageous.
3: Well, I mean, for anybody that's Watching that has a serious adverse reaction, I would absolutely. I mean, my heart goes out to all of them because, in effect, what they're saying is that the yellow card system has never been fit for purpose, which is always what we suspected. But to hear that, and 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 Alison Cave has got no excuses. She's she's run out of excuses. You know, she's already admitted they've got blunt tools. They're having to redesign a system. Well, shouldn't there have been a system in place, given that they were expecting? over 100,000 serious adverse reactions. I mean, as you said, Brian, there is so much in this that we have found out there's not enough time in the news. So I'll just let you c- carry on with it, because it gets deeper. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about it on extra. But that GS1 conference was chaired by another member of the Lords, Lord Hunt, but he's a whole different ball game, And that's enough for another news.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's carry on and have a look at how Alison Cave went on to explain the yellow card system.
2: Could you just explain the yellow card system?
6: because Yes, yes. the yellow card system is actually was introduced at the point of thramidamide very many years ago. But it Ooh, in, is a system by which ago. we capture what we call spontaneous reports. So they're reports from healthcare professionals, from manufacturers, but also very much from patients who have a suspected adverse incident, whether it's through a device or a medicine, um, and they report that into us. And we collect those, we get many thousands a year. We collect those and analyze those to look for signals. um, And and then we take appropriate regulatory action. So this is a yellow card system. Um, It's been amazingly important through COVID. We've had something like 400,000 yellow cards associated with the COVID vaccine. And that's allow us to do real time uh, risk mitigation of that enormous deployment of of vaccines through the COVID pandemic. Um, But uh, I'm very happy to say that we are launching a new yellow card platform called Safety Connect. Which will be a common vigilance platform, which will, for the first time, bring together all of device reporting, all of adverse drug reaction reporting, as well as blood rea- uh, reactions to blood products and uh, uh, defective medicines under one platform with one team analyzing. It also gives us much more analytical powers because it's a new platform. But importantly, it gives us more powers to feedback to patients um, the results and the downstream consequences of their yellow card.
0: Where do I begin? Um, Just incredible. So she admits over 400,000 cases. Uh, That can be multiple adverse reactions for one person. And uh, we've got deaths, we've got life-changing injuries. But now she's saying, well, uh, yes, we're doing risk analysis from the yellow card system, presumably the ones we haven't binned. Uh, but we need a new system because we can't, really pro- we can't really do our safety job with the existing yellow card system. This lady is taking the UK public to be a complete and utter fool, and she is laughing at the hundreds, thousands of people that have suffered adverse reactions. And of course, for the families of the people who've died, this is outrageous.
3: It's, it's it's tragic, it's catastrophic, it's heinous. I mean, and everybody needs to be showing that video to everybody. You know, Alison Cave, Baroness Cumberledge, June Rain, all of them need to know that we are watching them. And we need to be the voices for so many that are suffering with serious and ad- adverse reactions. And you know, very, very quickly as we speak, there have been 2,407 claims for vaccine damage payment. Out of that, 52 have been dealt with, 12 have been um, approved, 13 have been rejected, and 27 did not meet the criteria. So, and these, these numbers are increasing literally every single day. So, all of this that we're seeing today is absolutely, in my opinion, it's, it's evil,
1: uh, yes, but even the ones that have been dealt with very briefly, Debbie, I mean, the, the, what's on offer is is not going to help with long-term no. care. No.
3: Absolutely. No. £120,000 is a drop in the ocean. It's nothing. Yeah. These people have lost their jobs, their families, their livelihoods. It, it's... I, I haven't got words, yeah. seriously.
0: OK, well, while, while you're thinking about the words, Debbie, let's just finish the segment with a, a video clip of Baroness Julia Cumberledge talking about key messages and uh, then we'll move on.
5: I think Scan for Safety is wonderful. It really says it all Um, and it's using the barcodes which of course has been in supermarkets for a very long time. But this one is about safety. And I am absolutely certain that as it's rolled out across the country, we're going to have a much safer service.
0: So what she's starting to introduce there is of course that we can't do the safety at the moment, but not to worry because in the future, all the high tech information is gonna come in now we, we we're just gonna jump over a little bit of the material that we had, so bear bear with me if I can go straight to this particular lady you're interested in should be number seventy three Mike I yeah. think um we we shouldn't be worried, should we, debbie, because we've got a an overarching safety guru in Dr Henrietta Hughes. Tell us about this.
3: Dr. Henrietta Hughes was a recommendation from the Cumberledge report that there needs to be a patient safety liaison officer, uh, somebody that will listen to the patients. So here we've got Dr. Henrietta Hughes, who's a GP and she's worked for the NHS Confederation as a national guardian, um, into sort of listening to to, to patients, into safety. She's had her fingers in all sorts of pies, she's even been honoured. And so Baroness Cumberledge is very proudly announcing that as a result of her Cumberledge report, not to mention her conflicts of interest with Big Pharma, but because of her report, we now have a patient safety commissioner. And we've talked about Dr. Henrietta Hughes before on UK Column, but it wasn't until really recently that I decided that I'd like to try and get in touch with Dr. N. Henrietta Hughes. And I don't know where, where I can get in touch with her. There is no department for her there doesn't seem to be an email for her there's no phone number so if I can't get hold of her how do the that those that are suffering adverse reactions because I'm sure those that we've interviewed on the column like Charlotte and Caroline and Wayne and all of the others um, with vaccine injuries would really like to be able to pick up the phone and speak to this doctor but I don't know where she is.
0: No. So what, what we've got is a scam, isn't it? The public is told that there is this safety system, but in reality, it doesn't actually exist. It's a, a mirage. But as always, you uh, decided you were going to go a step further. So we'll pop this up on screen because you sent an email to invite uh, Baroness Cumberledge to speak to the UK column. But uh, it, was pretty c- it was clear pretty quickly uh, she didn't want to play
3: I was gutted because I actually, you know, I I I was I thought it was a very polite email. Please freeze the screen. I wanted to talk to her about pharmacovigilance. I wanted to talk to her about GS1, which actually is a barcoding. And we'll look at scan to connect maybe in extra how they're scanning patients. Yes, they really are. So, and I wanted to ask her how how the patients that we were speaking to would get hold of Dr. Henrietta Hughes and to have you know, to say how wonderful that it was that the government were recognizing Valparais victims, etc. And I was so disappointed that she wasn't too busy to be interviewed by Sky last week, but heard that Diary was far too busy for forever, it would seem, to talk to us. And I was just very disappointed because the invitation remains open. And I would really, I have got some very genuine questions I would like to ask Baroness Cumberledge, as I'm sure many other people have too.
0: I suspect, Debbie, she may be scared of you. I say that with a smile on my face. (laughs) Surely not. Surely not. (laughs) I think so. You've you've also picked up on this um, cynicism, the World Health Organization, the World Patient Safety Day, the 17th of September. So the uh, mirage goes on. Um, So medication safety, medication without harm, No check, ask is the call to action. And before you give it, no check, ask. Before you take it, no check, ask. But of course, that was absolutely not done for the majority of the people who were offered a vaccination.
3: I've got no words. It says it all, doesn't it, Brian?
0: It, It does. Okay, now, Alex, I'm going to say. You've got just an interesting little clip with a complete change of subject um, around Ireland here. So if you can do this as, a, as an end for the news, that would be really excellent.
2: Gladly, Brian. And I think I'll, I'll point out as well that that last clip of Baroness Cumberledge, is take, where she was addressing the GS1 conference, <clears throat> was from a, taken from a video entitled, Seize the Day, Seize the Data if I've got the video identification right. So that tells us a thing or two. Now, back in 2017, the leader of Fianna Foyle, one of Ireland's two establishment artists, uh, wasn't dreaming of being Taoiseach. In fact, uh, he'd said that he wouldn't take the premiership of the country uh, in some circumstances, but he's reneged on that. It's Micheál Martin. And here we have a still of him in May 2017 during a visit of Michel Barnier from the European Commission And this has become famous in certain Irish constitutionalist circles. I've taken the the still from the National Party's uh, re-upload of it. This was a a united session of both houses of the Irish Parliament, the Erochters, the Doyle and the Sianard. And uh, what was Martin saying? Let's bring that back on screen and I'll show you the uh, auto-transcript, a very useful feature of YouTube, uh, of the key remarks to Monsieur Barnier. Let there be no doubt about where Ireland stands. We want nothing to do with a backward-looking idea of sovereignty. We remain absolutely committed to the ideals of the European Union. We see the Union for what it is, the most successful international organization in world history. And there is some vehemence in his voice when Mr Martin says we want nothing to do with a backward-looking idea of sovereignty. That perhaps would have remained a footnote in the uh, halls of shame of uh, Irish mainstream politics. But for the fact that this Monday, the 22nd of August, was the centenary uh, of one of the most tragic blows that Ireland received in its early years of independence, the assassination in West Cork uh, of Michael Collins. Uh, the leader of the uh, dominant faction in the then raging Irish Civil War, uh, namely the pro treaty faction that wanted peace with Britain on the basis of Northern Ireland becoming uh, a, a province w- remaining within the UK. So we will show this as a still video, a silent video, I beg your pardon, because uh, there is unfortunately no audibility uh, of what went on. But down in Bielna Blaw, west of uh, Cork City, and those watching in video can see the Irish Defence Forces uh, flanking the T-shirt here, Mr. Martin. The centenary commemoration of the assassination with a, a period touring car with mounted machine gun there. Um, th- this. Uh, grand entrance was rather spoiled because some uh, Irish patriot had got hold of a tannoy system and managed to put it somewhere where the uh, the security checks didn't get it. I don't know how that was possible. But if you were listening to the audio, you would hear the hurrahs and the and the applause as uh, the Taoiseach Mr Martin comes to shake hands with various great and good. And at this point in the footage, which was shown on RTE, the national public broadcaster, uh, the tannoy rings out with, let this one thing be clear, we want nothing to do with backwards looking ideas of sovereignty. Of course, sovereignty is a huge hot-button issue for both the pro- and anti-treaty sides of Ireland's founding modern struggle of statehood, the 1920s, uh, well, first of all, the war against Britain, and then there's uh, the Civil War. So this couldn't have been more embarrassing, and it was rather wanly um, blocked uh, or, or, or drowned out by people either cheering or booing. They didn't know which to do. There's the wide-angle shot of the, uh, the stage at Bail Neblor. So this could have been the highlight of Mr. Martin's uh, faux patriotic uh, time as teacher. He's on a kind of job share with uh, his supposed rival um, uh, of the other main party, the leader, um leader, Mr. Varadkar, the Varadkar. But uh, it has rather been a, a, a damp squib a raining on his parade that somebody has actually played his own words back to him like that.
0: Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, um, an ideal thing to do, but of course the key bit is to wheedle these words out from under the stones. Often it's all hidden in plain sight, but getting it into the open uh, makes such a difference. So thank you for that one.
1: And- uh, Well, we're gonna end, we're gonna end with a shocking image and and probably uh, our audience needs- uh, To brace themselves. Yes, brace themselves for for this. Uh, But this was tweeted out today. Uh, with the letters O M G, and uh, well, it is uh, our future prime minister Liz Truss, uh, and on the inset image uh, looks is someone that looks very like her. Uh, I think I think uh, I think Alex, that's Chucky. I'm not quite sure. I think it's Chucky uh, from the uh, what was it from Child's Play? I think was the movie. Uh, but um, this is kind of reminds me of uh, David Cameron, and the, uh, the, looked very much patch. like a cabbage patch doll. Uh, and so the, there we go. The the Tory party seems to be. Uh, Maintaining its affinity with, uh, with with dolls from popular culture, um, so there we go.
0: Excellent. Okay. Well, um, what did the famous TV show say? Thank you, but don't have nightmares. Uh, we'll we'll say, particularly for this edition of the UK column news, um, there's a lot of information around this whole scam over vaccines and vaccine safety. Please share the material. Please talk about it. Please point it at people who have got the ability to stand up and do something about it. I'm talking about MPs, but I'm also talking about senior civil servants. I'm also talking about local councillors. So this is some critical information. Debbie has a lot more to give us on that, but uh, please use it. Let's not sit idly by. Thank you very much to everybody for joining us, wherever you are in the world. Uh, We will be back shortly for an extra time. Thank you. Bye bye.